So, there is many things that we have no idea about, things that we do not know at all. all right, for example, today, some of you might go to the grocery store after church, and you have no idea who you'll run into. Not a clue. Right? You also have to make a choice when you get done with your grocery shopping of which line to pick, and you have no idea which one will go fastest. You also don't know if there might be some sort of weird error with your credit card with those new chip readers that sometimes work and sometimes don't. I think they've improved them a lot, but still sometimes they're not perfect. Right? And then that's just our personal life, but consider the realm of the scientific discoveries and advancements that we've come through. And still today in 2024 now, we do not know what happened to the dinosaurs. There's theories. There's lots of speculation, and the leading thing is that big asteroid, but we don't know, right? We also don't know why yawning, this is weird, why yawning seems to be contagious. Yeah. <laughs> it, I was going to say, if there's lots of yawning, I'm, we're in a bad shape for me. <laughs> but we also don't know why the placebo effect works, but it does. Yet, despite this not knowing, it's never stopped the human mind from trying to make sense of not only those things, but all sorts of things. We come up with theories. We make all sorts of hypotheses on why something might be. We test, and then we test, and we test some more to see if we can come to a consistent conclusion. Sometimes we find answers. Sometimes. While other times, we simply have to move on and shrug our shoulders and go, that's the best educated guess we can come to. Now, in our current subjective postmodern culture, we debate the nature and the definition of love. We've talked a lot about love in this epistle. And once again, it becomes the main point. And the pure secular naturalist, for example, would look at love and would reduce it to just the chemical fizzings of our brain. Whereas the New Age spiritualist might suggest that love is this language of the universe and that since we are all interconnected in some mystic kind of way, we must lovingly accept everyone. However, the Christian ought to know the source and the reality of love. And as we work through the text this morning, we will have this one big idea or this one main idea, and I really want to make sure we see it, is that we see this, that we love God because He first loved us. Hence my title, uh, This is How We Know. So we will look at the text and make three points. One, the impact of the fall of, the human, of humanity that brought a fundamental separation of people into two distinct groups. Then we'll examine how each of these groups responds to the love of God. And finally, we will conclude with a third and final point by identifying the markers of love in the children of God. So if you're able... Uh, will you please stand for me for the reading of God's Word? Again, we are in 1 John chapter 3, 
picking it up in verse 11. This is the word of God. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that we, excuse me, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. May God bless the reading of his word. Yeah, you can be seated. So my first point is that due to the fall of humanity, there are again these two groups. And as we have been studying through 1 John, this is a clear theme of his epistle. We have those who walk in the light, and we have those who are left in darkness. And even John states this earlier in his epistle, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So when we discuss that, we notice that there were many Antichrists. So we had the, those who follow Christ and the Antichrist. And then continuing, there's the world, and those are those not of the world. So John identifies these people as being in darkness, as being of the world, as being these antichrists. And all are descended from the rebellious Adam through Cain. John continually sets these people in contrast with the descendants of the woman who are the children of Adam but redeemed through God's mercy and grace by the future work of Christ, or the second Adam. Paul writes this in Romans 5, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Adam, without God's redemption, without God's grace and redemption, is his son Cain. Adam, redeemed by grace, is his son Abel, uh, but then when Cain killed Abel, Adam and Eve's next son, Seth, picks up that line. And so we see then the line of the woman continued there. And so much of our story must go back, and we see this importance in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15, where God says to the serpent, or Satan, excuse me, in the form of the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This, at this moment, this is where these two lines divert and are established. Cain and Abel, then Seth, 
define these two lines of humanity. We have the seed of the woman, those who are the redeemed, and then we have the seed of the serpent, those who remain unredeemed and in darkness. And they deny God. They reject Christ because they are left in darkness and continue in rebellion against God and his people. And so then for my second point, we want to now look at these two groups. We see where they came from. We see sort of their, their beginnings, but let's dive into them. So let's first contain, uh, consider excuse me, the lineage of Cain. Those in the line of Cain are in the darkness. They pursue their own desires, and they have a heart for what I like to call the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Selfishness and self-righteousness are the marks of the children of the devil. Consider Cain in his story, if we were to look back at Genesis chapter 4, Cain does not show any remorse for his murder. In fact, when God brings judgment and speaks to him, he claims that his punishment is too harsh. He is worried only for what he will have to endure, and he does not see the mercy of God, and he is unconcerned with the fact that his brother's blood is literally on his hands. He clearly is thinking only of himself. And this is the pattern of the children of the devil. They think only of themselves. See, Cain's complaint, Cain's cry is not that different from what we might hear against God today. Consider this, right? Someone might say something like this. It's not fair. It's not fair for God to only have one way of salvation. Or how can God judge someone for simply doing what they want to do? Selfishness, looking inward. These and similar complaints are evident evidence, excuse me, of membership to this unredeemed line of humanity. These are the people of darkness. And they are of the world and the Antichrist. See, because their hearts are dead and cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus says this, as is recorded in Mark 10, 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. See, sin is conceived in the heart of man. This rebellion is in them because they are of the seed of the serpent, and they continue on in the darkness. And this is also why we see John write this, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The enmity 
between these two lines of humanity is the story throughout Scripture. Classic examples of Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, and even David and Saul. Each of these adversarial relationships confirm this strife, confirm the strife between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And these adversarial relationships ought to guide our understanding of the strife we may experience in our own life, right? People will run, excuse me, we will run into people who love the darkness. They will argue and they will stir up trouble for those who love God. Because of this enmity between these two lines, we will see this stirring up and I'm sure Many of us have probably already dealt with this to some degree. See, if the darkness of sin, selfishness, strife are the hallmarks then of the devil, of the child of the devil, then what makes the child of God? Verse 14 of our text says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So look at this love then. Love is the key difference between these two lines, between the seed of the woman, who are the children of God, and they love their brothers. See, look at verse 16. And by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. Christ laid down his life to redeem this fallen people from Adam's fall and to avoid Cain's fate. See, Christ's death and resurrection are the fulfillment of the seed of the woman delivering the death blow to the crushing of the serpent's head. And this is why we can go to our most beloved text, John 3.16. Everyone, I'm sure, knows it, or many of you do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so this is that passing from life into death that John mentions in his epistle that we just looked at. And it is the key to understanding God's love. Rather than condemn the world, God was mercifully patient to apply backwards from the cross the redemption Jesus would earn by his life and his death. God so loved the world, Jesus so loved the world, and true love is seen in the historical actions of God who is love. So in light of this redemptive history, John writes in the next chapter this very important phrase, God is love. God is love. Only through the eyes of the worldview of Christianity can we know really what love is. See, the son goes to the cross and he considers it pure joy because he loved his father and those image bearers 
his people that the Father loved. And the Father raised Jesus from the dead to show us what humanity truly is to look like. And he shows the Father's plan for our future. The Father's loving application of the Son's loving sacrifice comes through the Spirit of God who points us to the Son, who points us back to the love of the Father. You see this interconnectedness of the Trinity at play here, and that is the redemption of humanity in history. See, because love transcends existence. Love existed before creation. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Love existed before creation. So as children of God, we are to love as God loves. And we know love by the redemptive work of Christ because we love and we love because God has shown his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died. That's from Romans chapter 5. Verse 8. So, I have a helpful visual here. Hopefully, it makes sense of some things of what we've summarized of my first two points. So, we have the two lines, right? The children of the devil, the children of God. And these are categorized by um, Cain, right? The children of the devil. And then later, Abel and Seth, the children of God. And then we can see their hallmarks there. Selfishness compared to selflessness. Hatred and strife compared to love. And then we begin the Cain and the children of the devil stay in the darkness, whereas the children of God love the light. So, let us now move on then to point three. Let us identify the markers of, a of, excuse me, of the children of God. We now are to love our brothers and sisters similarly, and we are only able to do this because of Christ's death and resurrection. Because in that act, we are given a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, this redeeming work of Jesus Christ is what allows us to be adopted into the family of God. This is what brings us and makes us children. See, we're given this new heart and the indwelling of the Spirit who now empowers us to obey the commands of God. We are not able to accomplish this on our own. Just as we are unable to love others in our own strength, love disconnected from God becomes self-centered and is done for our own glory, whereas this love is connected to God and brings Him glory. So having been given this new heart, then we are now able to love like Jesus Christ. John writes in verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, 
Includes the sisters too, by the way. And does not, and excuse me, how does he suggest that we do this? We'll look at verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers and sisters in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God love abide in him? John has made it abundantly clear throughout this letter that God's love does not abide in a person who hates God's children. Because everyone who abides in God will desire, will desire to obey God and God's commands. And God commands, excuse me, to love one another, all those who are in the family of God. See, just as Jesus laid down his life, we lay down our lives for others. If we are to love like this, then we must be willing to lay down our lives for others. And the, the common understanding of this, especially uh, as we look at this further, is to be good stewards of the resources we have been given. Amen. Right? If anyone has the goods excuse me, the, the world's goods, John says, then we need to help. Here's how we should understand this commandment. Or excuse me, some might suggest this, that we need to go out into this world, right, and just give of our monies and our resources to the homeless in our community. But there must be some discernment here. Because not all just merely giving for the sake of giving is inherently helpful. Giving money without discretion can be harmful, uh, especially if that person then uses those resources to harm themselves. Right? So we need to have this discerning eye, and we need to be careful how we continue to do this so that we do not make things worse. But discernment should not become our excuse for inaction. So we have to walk this fine line here where we use discernment on knowing what we would do, but then at the same time, not just go, well, see, I'm using discretion and I'm not going to help. Right? There needs to be this fine line of how we interact with this. And we have resources in our own community for this particular problem. We can use the, the Redwood Gospel Mission, for example. See, we can turn someone there to point them out, and they can then work through the situation and give them more resources than we might individually be able to do. But another helpful marker in this, this understanding is this word brothers that John has continued to use. And it's the Greek word adelphos. And it's to simplify it, it's, it's this idea of a spiritual brother or sister, a Christian brother or sister who should be of the first concern, the, the one we look to first. And, God, and John excuse me, tells us that we are not to cling to our own goods and the goods of the world, but again, be willing to use discernment and to think and to give of the needs and to share the good gifts that we have been given from God. So John tells us that we are to look for the needs of others, especially those who are the brothers and the sisters in Christ, and recognize the blessings God has bestowed on us so that we can share 
them with others out of love for God. But not only love for God, love for each other as well. And so the love of God moves us to help those who we are able to help. And in verse 18, John writes, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. See, this verse, John takes us from loving other believers to sharing the love of Jesus for a purpose of sharing the gospel. We are to love by deeds, but our deeds hopefully open a door so that we can use words to share truth. You may have heard this very popular quote. Uh, It's attributed to Francis of Assisi, and it says, Preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. Catchy, but wrong. You can do good deeds all day long, but if you never open your mouth and you never give credit to the one who has moved you to help others in need, we help others. Why? They don't know. There's no motive. There's no understanding of a bigger love than just helping people. But we help others because the love of God. See, and our love comes from our faith in Christ. We can't disconnect these two realities. We can't. We love because God loves us and because of our faith in Christ. So we love in deed and we love in truth. And when our helping hands are accompanied by a mouth that speaks the truth of sin and salvation to share the gospel... This is the greatest act of love we can do. Because here's what we don't know. We don't know where the Holy Spirit is always working. And he might be working in that very moment of the heart of the unbeliever who stands before us. And then when we share the gospel, we declare the love of God. And so this is how we must love in deed and in truth. Now, I recognize that John's letter is challenging because it calls us to examine our own lives and and in the light, in particular, of what it means to really be a child of God. Some have even said John is very harsh. So harsh that we might even wonder, do I have what it takes? Am I measuring up? Do I have true saving faith? In verse 19, though, through the end of our passage, John seems to soften his message and his tone, and he he tells us why we can have confidence that God is at work in us. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. To what is John referring by, this, by the word this, well, verse 20 tells us, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Our heart is alive by the Spirit, 
But the new born-again life also brings a conscience sensitivity to our failures. And so sometimes we, we will grieve our shortcomings and feel convicted because we know the standard of sin is so high. But God. Two beautiful, amazing words, aren't they? Create joy, don't they? But God. But God being rich in mercy. This takes us back to Christ because we are unable to measure up. Because we are unable to love like God. Because we cannot help others as we think we should. We run to Christ. Why? Because the Spirit has changed us, and He's working in us. God is omniscient. He knows everything. That's what all that word means. He knows everything. He's all-knowing. He knows the truth of our life. He's not unaware of our attempts, of our hesitations, of our sin. He knows why we act the way we do. And even when we may not act, he knows why. He knows those, excuse me, he knows all those motives and he knows our heart better than we do. He understands the challenge of what it is to be a child of God, yet still wrestling with a sin. And he gives comfort through his spirit who guides us by his word. It is the spirit in us that gives us confidence before God. And John says, whatever we ask in him, we shall receive. We ask for forgiveness when we feel we have failed. And we ask for strength to rise us up from when we're down and trodden and continue on. And we have confidence before God because he has given us faith in Christ. Thus, this eases that condemnation of our hearts as we have faith in God. Just as verse 21 draws out. So given that we trust in God and our hearts do not condemn us due to this faith, we can now approach God in prayer. John closes his, this passage in verses 23 and 24 by writing this, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So verse 23 there is clearly a difficult command. It's so difficult that it can only come by the power of God. To believe in his name, the name of his son, Jesus Christ, is impossible without this new heart that the spirit brings at the new birth, or what we might call regeneration. Jesus says this is recorded in Matthew 11, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, come to me. 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, if we believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, then we know the Father, and we have the Spirit to love one another as God has commanded. As the children of God, we have confidence to walk in obedience, although we don't do this perfectly. We do love with a heart that beats in time with the heart of Christ. We do love like Christ, and it is only there that we find rest for our souls. For his yoke is easy. His commands are easy and the burden light with the Spirit animating us or moving us, spurring us on every step we take to joyfully obey the one who has loved us so we can love one another. 2 Corinthians 5.14 and 15 says this, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded thus, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might, excuse me, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It has been well said. Never, excuse me, never underestimate the fall. For the fall changed everything. But we see from the beginning how God has made a people for himself out of that devastation of the fall. That seed of the woman, the seed of Eve, who was promised from the beginning has come and crushed the one who deceived our ancestors. And by his finished work, all those God calls have overcome the fall with its certainty of death and are now children of the Most High God and, and co-heirs with Jesus of eternal life. So while the unredeemed despise the love of God because they have no real love, for others in particular, we have seen that our heart has given us a love for all, especially those in the family of God. And while we cannot love perfectly in this life, and often even shall fall very short of those expectations, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is this truth that we need to hold tight to. This truth gives us confidence before the throne of grace. And my brothers and sisters already pointed out that life is full of mystery. We have many questions and we may never discover those answers. 
However, we can hold and be most assured and confident that we love because God first loved us. And therefore, because Jesus laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you and we praise you for this truth that you, Lord, have redeemed us. You've given us this new heart and you've given us the spirit who empowers us now to walk in obedience. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us to do that each and every day, to obey your commands and to move because, Lord, you first loved us. We love you, Lord. We praise you for your goodness and your grace that we see every day. And we lift this prayer up in Christ's name. Amen.